Welcome to No Cartridge Audio. My name's Trevor Strunk, Higglebun on Twitter, and I'm here with uh, Emily Rose of uh, Rebind. Um, and actually, I would like you to tell us, Emily, about about your 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 project because uh, you foolishly told me before you came on that uh, that you introduce your guests or you have your guests introduce themselves, and I am stealing that for myself right now. And I want you to introduce yourself. Uh, but how am I going to get like a, a reverse projection of what you think of me now? I know, I don't, I don't know. I'm in the dark. Oh. Uh, I'm Emily Rose. I'm the exciting editor over at Rebind.io. Uh, what we do is we focus on sort of the intersection of uh, fine arts and the performance arts and video games, specifically what we classified something as micro-indies. We call it that because it sounds kind of like micro-brews and also like, I don't <laughs> like calling games small. You don't refer to like indie film as like small film, right? Or like small music. Right. Like we don't do that. That's actually a good uh, point. I never really thought of that, but you're right. <laughs> Yeah, no, there's there's this tweet that I've said it a couple times in my podcast of just like, uh, you know, it. I, I love going uh, down to the theater and, and watching my movies for their movie feel and just like other like kinds of like <laughs> goofy words we use every day with games that would be totally unacceptable in anything else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of what we focus on, again, is like no review scores, no trade publicationism. Uh, because like a lot of the industry is built up on like capitalistic practices and sort of like the ways in which we court consumers and, and bigger companies and stuff like that. It's all kind of tied together in this like extremely unpleasant, like sort of like publisher industrial complex. Right. And yep. there's nothing wrong with some of that. I appreciate it. But a lot of what we try to do is to back away from that get back to the way that we look at other mediums like film and analyze them that way and to uplift unheard voices, especially minority and diverse voices, just for the fact that like it enriches the cultural aspect of it. It's just like a better way to approach these things. It's like, how many games can you play by like generic same old people <laughs> that we're always used to seeing? It's just, it gets dull. Yeah. No more Jonathan no, for Blows. Sure. Forget it. What? Oh no. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, 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 no. But let's leave Jonathan Blow in the past. Let's leave, uh, um oh uh Detroit become human guy David Cage in the past uh let's just let's just move on um leave him but, in his cage <laughs> uh but yeah no 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 you're right and i i you know one of the things that i i really like about and one of the reasons i was really excited to have you on um one of the things i like about rebind is uh you know some of the the more um uh i'll say far afield guests that i've had on like um uh, Pedro Paiva and uh, uh, Vinicius Machado uh, have both like said like, oh yeah, I really like Rebind. Like I, I know uh, I, like people who I I know as diverse voices in video games are just like, oh yeah, like have you checked out Rebind? Like that's a cool place. Uh, so like I you know it it like for one like you're doing really good work, and for two, um, you know like even even like like any effort absolutely is seen by people, right? Like, like that, that kind of thing, like just like pushing back against the, the, the ubiquity of everything else. Like people, people do notice. And I think that's like super cool. Like providing that, that kind of place for people. Yeah, for sure. And I genuinely feel like uh, a lot of what we do is like, we don't punch up at individuals, but we do punch up at institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think like, you know, there, there is a lack of recognition, especially in games of separating like the, the institutions from people. So, you know, people tend to complain about journalists a lot and like, oh, those games, those pesky games journalists. And it's like, <laughs> look, those journalists are shaped by 
years of freelancing and having to deal with market dynamics. I mean, like you don't get mad at YouTubers for being YouTubers. You get mad at the YouTube algorithms, right? Right. Yes. Uh, and, and something you outlined there that's pretty interesting. Uh, speaking of Pedro and Vinicius, hi, uh, is that <laughs> we do a lot of outreach to people who are outside the normal continuum of like what every press site covers, which is like, UK, Australia, America, like all those places we're super familiar with, right? Right. So something we had started out like focusing on really early on was Brazil, Spain, Portugal, um, outreach to Russia as well. Uh, and I would love to get more involved with like covering like things from Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, um, there's Togi Productions, which is down in like i want to say i'm totally gonna get that wrong it's it's not it's not um indonesia right okay so yeah uh the indonesian game scene just has like a thriving little indie community down there and they're wonderful so it's like there is this wealth of like indie developers who are coming from these countries who aren't attached to our normal zeitgeist and have maybe been inspired of it maybe they evolved independently like something i love about brazil is like they have a really deep heritage with like pirate cart culture and like yeah sort of yeah like reverse engineering stuff and it's really super awesome and all of that is so exciting to cover and to talk about and to engage with and i want to cover it more on the site because uh you know it's it's kind of amazing i i'd say that like a surprising amount of our audience is now like we have a pretty decent sizable like brazil contingent and that makes me really happy because that's cool just seeing like these people be able to get like as much of a voice and a stage on things and to be able to engage with all this stuff because frankly you know and this isn't coming at anyone in particular it's just i feel like the more exciting games that i am seeing in the indie scene are coming out of places that you wouldn't normally think of for being known for their game scenes, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, whereas it's like the stuff that's kind of like your bread and butter, kind of churn and burn, whatever, is like coming out of the places that we expect innovation from and we're not really getting it. It's like there's still great games coming out of the UK and out of America and all that stuff and Canada, but it's like they overwhelmingly get a lot of the attention just by default for just existing. And I don't really see that as being something that is entirely fair nor healthy for the industry because it, again, it continues to prop up this infrastructure that is just so hyper focused on what's like in front of us rather than what's around us. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I think like one of the things that um, struck me uh, again, like talking to Pedro about, about his work was like, and then playing his work uh, and then, you know, going ahead and playing other sort of like indies that I'd never heard of, like, uh, you know, like new ice York or um, uh, some of the um, uh, King Spooner games, um, like, mm. you know, like uh, a number of things that I hadn't been introduced to. Um, uh, although that the, the latter is UK, of course, but like, yeah, like it, it, what I realized, what I sort of was struck by was the fact that the, the games that I was used to seeing, um, uh, press on or like, uh, uh, glowing reviews of were games like, um, like Greece or, or Gris or, or, or however you would say it. Um, which is the one I always think of. Cause it's like, it's a game about trauma and it's a game about like, you know, sadness and stuff like that. But it, it like, I, I talked to a dev one time who said like, and I'll, I'll leave them nameless, but uh, who was just like, man, like if, if, if a game like that was never made again, it would be okay. Like the, these games, like they're just so predictable. They kind of like they're paint by numbers at this point. And then you see something like, like 
as violent or as weird or as just like surreal and strange and short as one of Pedro's pieces or, or one of like one of a lot of people's mm-hmm. like work from uh, outside of like the Imperial Corps. It's like this is actually getting at those themes way more, way more with with tons more clarity in like a way that I am just like absolutely feeling as opposed to just sort of being like, wow, this is so beautiful and sad. Um, well, I think I think micro indies in general and and indies that are like don't have as much cloud or reach and get more experimental i think they have a much greater grasp of subtext frankly yeah they have less commercial pressure on them to like force them to do that it's like uh you know we really take stuff like pathologic for granted for example because ice pick lodge was like pretty small back in the day and it's like we kind of like wind up in this situation where we're like, oh, this is so good, and it's so full of all these subtexts and things like that, and it's like, yeah, and that happened in spite of the institutions we have in place, not because of it, you know? We, right, exactly. We shouldn't hold this up as a victory. We should think of, like, well, what are the pathologics that could have happened over the years that we don't get to have because those people couldn't find a way to sustain their living and to be able to make art? Yeah, and I think, like, even even in terms of the, the reception to Pathologic 2, which I thought was great, uh, the game, not the reception. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the reception and people people getting frustrated at the reception. Like, uh, why can't people like appreciate this game? Like, yes, you know, be frustrated that people can't appreciate a thing that that you find important. Like, that's totally okay, and like you know, can be very beneficial. But like, also just like I think at a certain point you just have to ask like, okay, so like, why did we, why did we assume that now this would just be accepted as like something everyone should play? Like, is this, is it, do we, do we just assume at a certain point that we've reached a moment where pathologic has become, you know, like accessible? Is that, is that where we're at? Or would we ever want well, that? I, or is like, it's, it's, a, it's I, like kind of a strange dynamic. I can tell you exactly how this happens because I have spent the past year, like pretty much studying these dynamics. And a oh, lot wow, of what Rewind does is actually built on this, which is mm. that, um, so when it comes to stalker pathologic dwarf fortress anything like that so a lot of those things especially anything that's referred to as like uh i I can't remember who called it this it might have been like dave ashri or dylan rogers or something who referred to the genre slav clunk (laughs) Uh, and, and sort of these like clunky kludgy games that you just can't help but love and sometimes you hate them a little bit too and the way i look at it is that we learned about those games usually through uh, counterculture stuff back in the day. So uh, a lot of like, you know, you'd see those things in like Reddit or like image boards and stuff like that. The places people don't go to as much but want to discuss weird games on. Um, I think that is more so nowadays being a little more, more and more supplanted by um, uh, obscure game reviewing YouTube. Uh, mm-hmm. So you've got your like civvies, your GG man lives, like all that stuff. Okay, yeah. Uh, but now also, I think, uh, at least back in 2007, 2008, the next, like, sort of, like, circle of, like, Dante's uh, Media Inferno is that you go from, you know, the the 10th circle or whatever it is, in, or the first circle of, like, you know, these weird backroom counterculture outlets, you shift up to something that's a little bit more reputable, maybe still seen as a little fringe, like, well, what's our equivalent to Pitchfork, at least back in 2007? Well, that was Rock, mm-hmm. Paper, Shotgun, because they were yes. doing PC games coverage at a time where everyone was like, PC games? Get out of here, Grandpa. Take your <laughs> ZX Spectrum and fuck off. Uh, it's okay if I swear on this podcast, right? Yes, 100%. I would have told you. Oh, fantastic. Oh, so good. I'm so happy. Uh, so, yeah, 
basically what happened. Uh, this is this is really nice, by the way. I have to be so like stiff and like professional on my oh, podcast. Yeah, here. no, not at all. Whoa, let loose, let uh, loose. So, what happened was that rock paper shotgun was really built off of this idea that the the founders were like, oh, we have these like boring trade publication like day jobs like. When I want to write about like PC games and the things that we actually play, not just play for work. And so they started covering all this weird stuff that they had just fallen in love with over the years, or maybe they had a fond memory of. And so that was really where Pathologic, I think, started cropping up on their their radar. You know, they were mm. kind of like in a in a sense the like patient zero or whatever. And I use Pathologic as an example because I think it's a it's a great illustration of like sort of like the tragedy of the cult classic, which is like, I, I want your audience to think about this for a hot minute. Reflect on your most beloved cult classic, 80s movies that seem like stock standard, everybody's seen them, etc. you know, the thing, like all this stuff, all that. And then reflect on how at the box office when those came out, a lot of those movies were like fucking flops. And like right. for years on end, right? They, they weren't, they didn't become popular overnight. They were like a slow burn, like really hella out there on the long tail. And so coming back to games, what we had was like the birth of this like cult classic, like long tail thing. Um, Red Letter Media is a good example of how this happens in film a lot of the times. Like they'll mm -hmm. look at something, they'll fall in love with something, and then it'll just sort of get culted all the way up. Uh, right. <laughs> so with, with Rock I like cult as a verb, like, by the way. That's good. Yeah, yeah. So with Rock Paper Shotgun, they have a very fiercely loyal, I think, commenting section where they discuss these things and then they have a tendency to revisit the same games once in a while. Uh, sometimes they'll do like sort of like a di diary format stuff. Maybe they'll just do a straight analysis, like whatever. At that point in their history, they weren't doing as much like the... I, I feel like they were doing stuff that was a little more like from, from the heart. I mean, the stuff they do now is still pretty good and they have some great freelancers working over there. The editorial staff is really cool. Uh, but but back then it was very like personable, very like parasocially, etc. Yeah, sure. Uh, <clears throat> so what happened was that this fermented for years on end. We go from like 2008 to 2012. We see some games that RPS had been the first on the scene to like hold up, and then that became like started spilling over to other sites. And then before you know it, it's like 2014, and everyone's just like, oh. Whatever happened to Pathologic? I loved that game. That was a classic. <laughs> and then I speak Logic. I was like, oh, shit, you remember us? Like, wow, there's a lot of people who want this. And everybody's clamoring, banging on the desk. They're going like, Pathologic 2, Pathologic 2. Uh, and so they go, okay, well, we'll test the waters with an HD re-release and get better localization. Everything's going nice and good. That comes out, performs fairly well from my understanding. And then... More years go by, tick, 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 tick away, because now you're doing Pathologic 2. That's that's a really huge endeavor. And then it comes out in, like, what, 2017, 2018? I think you last year. Yeah, so that's, yeah. like, almost a decade after initial sort of, like, uh, fermentation, right? Yeah. And so that hype's kind of, like, you know, the people who were, like, really there rooting for Pathologic 2, like, moved on. They've gotten day jobs. They've, like... Uh, kids, they have other focus in their lives, whatever, boring adult, adult shit. Yeah. And so what happens is, and they go like, okay, guys, it's fresh out of the oven. It's done. And they walk in a room that's like, maybe got like two people left in it. And they're like, what the hell? I made this like super huge, like big pie of Pathologic 2. And there's only like two of you. <laughs> we can't finish this. Uh, so, and, and it's sort of like, 
it's a trustful exercise, right? With the press and especially like the, the taste making press and these small developers, because like, it's such a risk for them, especially going into it when they're bootstrapping something. Yeah. And I feel like Pathologic 2 is kind of an example of like, they kind of got trustballed, man. You know, it's like, it's not necessarily like anyone's specifics fault. That's just how the general opinion of the public like sways like there's an ebb and flow in the hype but i think that kind of is a is a good model of how these things work does that make sense no it totally does like i think like one of the ways that that pathologic and games in general work and I, i've never really thought about it this way is that like you know, we think about them like novels right where like the cult mm-hmm. classic status uh operates for such a long time like oh you know like it's not going to be like you know, no matter how many people joke about it, like, you know, uh, Gravity's Rainbow or uh, Infinite Jest or whatever are, are going to remain cult classics. Like people will recommend them in their freshman year of college or whatever. Like people are going to to read these books because like they got cult classic status. Like they're just like a well, thing right. people like. And, and here's something to think about, too, that's really actually really good to come out of that like novel metaphor is if a J.G. Ballard book doesn't do too great. He's going to still keep writing books. Yeah, exactly. It's like he's not going to stop, right? It's not going to be like the end of the world for him. It's not a big deal because you just write books for yourself, essentially. You're not so worried about like having that performance overhead because it doesn't cost you that much to write, right? Right. But as a development studio, you have to keep the doors open. So it's more equatable to like a high end cafe, a winery, or like a restaurant, right? Which need constant, like, Mm -hmm. like, unless they get like not just cult status, but like, establishment status like you you know like Mm -hmm. this is the place to go in burlington or whatever like san francisco or whatever like if it's a vacation spot and you can be the place to go then you don't need that place anymore but like or that that press anymore but if it if you're just like you know if you get like a little thing written up in the av club or whatever uh equivalent where they where they say like oh hey um you know like the the um you know, the, the, uh, this place is the best for tacos in, in Philadelphia or whatever. Um, well, that's great. And maybe you'll get a small boost, like, you know, from the taco, uh, appreciative public, but like, that's not going to last you much longer than a couple weeks. And if you think about that in terms of games, like that's a very scary thing. If you're, you know, year two in a dev cycle. Oh, a hundred percent. And I mean, like I've seen game budgets. We're talking like for something like Pathologic 2, we're probably like at least north of 750k. I'd be amazed if they did it for less and like, hey, if they did, like, good on them. But that's a lot of people to be paying salaries for, ensuring the future of, and to all be placing all those bets in like a, a little story. Uh, Rafael Colantonio, who did um, Arcane Studios, uh, was the lead of that for a while before finally, I think a year or so ago, opening up a pizzeria. You know, hell of a retirement. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Uh, But before they did Dishonored and after they did Arx Fatalis, they wanted to make Arx Fatalis 2, right? Oh, okay. And so uh, they started pitching that to publishers. Nobody was buying, da-da-da-da, all this stuff. And eventually Bethesda bites. And Bethesda goes like, we love this. This is fantastic. We want to make a deal. Let's just get back to you. And so Raphael's like, great. Okay, cool. We'll keep working on it. We're all good. And then time goes by. Time goes by. Time goes by. And they're getting to the point where they don't have enough payroll to keep the company open. So it's either like, we're going to shut our doors or we need to find another buyer. And so they pitched it to Ubisoft. And Ubisoft went, cool engine. Uh, Don't give a shit about the game, though. Uh, How about 
and I am embellishing this a little. I mean, <laughs> surely it was a little nicer, but for, for Raphael, I know it was a hard choice to make because they basically went like, gut this, turn it into a Might and Magic spinoff, Dark Messiah, and then, you know, we'll like hold in the engine and it'll keep your doors open, but Arx Fatalis, bye-bye, it's not happening. Man. And so he sat on that for a little while and then finally made the decision because Ubisoft was like pretty quick about the paperwork and he signed it. They just committed to this, all this stuff. Uh, Todd Howard calls up the next fucking day. Oh my God. And goes, hey, got the paperwork. So excited to get on Arx Fatalis too. Oh, that's crushing. What we don't talk about is how that shit happens all the time in this industry. Oh, man, that sucks. Whew. Yeah, no. And like, so one of the things you wanted to talk about when you were coming on and like one of the things I definitely want to get to is and and totally ties in with this is the way that like the current economic moment is going to like be a real problem for for indie games, for micro games, for for just like uh, like games that are outside of like the major studio markets, like the major studio markets are going to be fine. Uh, I, I, that is my thinking. I, I don't think they are in much of a threat, uh, especially because like they're effectively using uh, isolation to pitch the idea of playing video games and normalize the idea of playing video games. I think they'll be fine. Um, smaller studios though. Um, I, I agree with you that there might be a backlash uh, or an economic problem and i'm interested in hearing why for you so i'm actually going to completely put that on that head like i'm, I'm oh, going to flip okay. that upside down and say dang, the inverse dang. actually i think triple a because now. it is publicly traded has a lot of equity involved in it they're going to have to liquidate a hell out of those studios their overheads are so huge i mean that is why they have microtransactions because okay. they can't just get away with that 60 dollar price point right sure. also let me tell you People are already really hostile to microtransactions. You think they're oh, going to warm up yeah. to it when we're in a huge economic downturn and like everybody's like barely making ends meet, if not just like barely surviving, right? Okay. And no, so you're right. What a, what a lot of people don't realize is that the reason we have a lot of cult classics today was people working their like minimum wage jobs in the 90s, barely getting by, doing okay. They had a little bit of extra income on the top. So they go to Blockbuster, they rent movies, they buy like cheap movies at the like VHS store or whatever, whatever the hell they did back in the day. I don't know. I'm not grandpa, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm grandpa. They, they, That's what we did. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They watch like shitty B movies, whatever. And they did this because it was like, it was frugal, right? It was like, you watch these like kind of great, like hidden gems or whatever. And yeah. they don't cost you that much. And you can share them with your friends, talk about that fall into film analysis, like whatever you want to do, but like, you're not going out to the theater every night. I mean, like less and less people go to the theaters because it gets more and more expensive every year. Yeah. Right now, AAA is on the precipice of being those fucking theaters. Okay. Like, and I, you will have your like core franchises, like Bethesda is just going to be just fine, etc. Anything that has a big fan backing, you're never going to see like less call of duty or whatever. But I think there's going to be less willingness to take risks at a AAA level. And I think the size of those companies are going to contract down to like their critical core staffings. Huh. And what's That's going to be good. interesting, <laughs> I think it will. Here's I mean, the maybe upswing it could be. to that. Yeah. That's going to mean more talent pull in the market. And a lot of AAA people really want to get out of offices. They want to go indie. They want to have that liberal, artistic, and creative freedom. 
And so what's going to happen is they're all going to be looking for work. They're not going to be able to find any industry. They're either going to pivot in the software or something like that, or they're going to start on their own projects. So what you're going to see is kind of like uh, back in 2008, 2012, when Paradox started buying up all the THQ assets once uh, THQ went out of business. Uh, and just sort of like you're going to have this basically like swooping in of just like buying up all this infrastructure, all these small studios and talent and what we consider to be maybe like double A space players or like even smaller than that in terms of publishing houses. Those are going to be big boys in a couple of years. Those are going to be your devolvers. Those are going to be your huh. like 505 games is a great example. I can't name to you anything 505 did in like, say, 2009, other than a game called Cryostasis, which is really niche and you can't even actually buy it on Steam anymore, which is a damn shame. It's one of my all time favorite first person shooters from a wonderful studio um, action forums, I think, which is now like quasi defunct. But like essentially what's going to happen is like 505 is now publishing like Control. Right. right? right so that's right, right. like huge. Right. That's a remedy property after they got out of the grips of Microsoft. So that's you're going to see an upswing in those. You're going to see more devolvers, more paradoxes, more 505s uh, because they're going to go around. And it's just going to be a, a fucking like liquidation buffet. Um, huh. I also think that you're going to see consumers on the other side of that. Um, either like really hawking out, waiting for those steam sales and stuff like that. Or I think itch is going to become more popular over the next few years, especially because of the fact that more people with mainstream commercial success and like steam and Epic and big platforms like that also have a presence on itch. So it's kind of this idea of like, it's, it's the phenomenon that led good old games to have the success that it did was that like platform parody, uh, just like you release on one, you release on the other. And then the customers of those platforms will go for whatever they prefer. And, it just kind of has this home advantage of being like Bandcamp for indie devs, right? right. So you it's, know yeah. that like devs get a greater share of it. You can sometimes do pay what you want. So maybe you, maybe you're feeling really generous and you want the opposite of the sale. You want to give more money to the devs, and you don't even have to buy an extra copy of the game. You just be like, I'm gonna pay you a hundred dollars for this four dollar game because I love you, hmm. and then that's that's amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. And so I think like what we are going to see is people experimenting more. I think and i, I want to wind it back a little bit because there's a topic i think we need to talk about uh, a kind of elephant in the room um but uh, i mean does does my analysis seem pretty no, straight up so far it does like i i guess like i guess part of my analysis and and my blind spot here is is just like you know bog standard pessimism in in thinking about like you know what mm -hmm. happens to like what i know about and i mean a lot of what i know about indie devs is is by talking to to the few i've met and like you know talking to scott about like what happened through the production right in the woods or you know th that kind of stuff like it it feels like it is such a and it is of course like such a a difficult thing to actually like produce a game um so like my my initial thought was like oh gosh this will make it like way harder but you're right like it's not going to like just dodge the the mainstream studios they are publicly traded they are not too big to fail um, so, yeah, no, it totally makes sense to me so far. And there's a few bubble bursts now, too. Like, uh, one of the reasons that, like, again, Rebind really, like, coasts off of that, like, cult momentum, right? We, mm -hmm. we look for the stuff that's, like, gonna be gold in, like, five to eight years, and we start setting that trend. We're just doing what Rock, Paper, Shotgun did back in 08 uh, with Pathologic and stuff like that. And because it's, like, that's 
where inevitably the tide pulls. So pay attention to where the tides and the currents are pulling and you don't have to like do so much work, right? You can just be carried along by the sea. And so uh, we, we try to get in, we try to do that. We try to pay attention to those treads. We always try to like look ahead and, and pay attention to people who have no note, but have like kind of that spark in them because like those are the people you want to get out in the public eye because those are the people who are going to define like kind of the next trends coming up and, and, and set the stage uh, as we've seen with stuff like, I don't know, like you had off, then you had Lisa and then you had like Undertale and Undertale was the big one that finally jumped out and, and, and broke and ran away. And then suddenly everyone's like, Oh, 2d RPGs. Those are totally commercially viable now. <laughs> uh, and, and so it, it happens in weird ways. So yes. there's a little thing I like to refer to as, and maybe this sounds egotistical in a way, but I like coining terms and I think that they're useful, uh, making your audience, you know, mm-hmm. this is what we've seen with the failure of, um, curation, trend chasing and, uh, YouTube algorithms in particular. And this kind of winds back to my earlier point that I wanted to get back to, uh, YouTubers started out back in the day, just making their audiences, right? Like they just like do one thing that was oh, the yeah. thing that they just like to do. And then eventually an organic audience would build up and great. And then other people started figuring out that you could cynically like sink it in that be like, what if I target these specific things, like whatever's hot or not or whatever. And we got in these like, I don't know, like various like different famous YouTubers. And so everyone's like, oh, there's gold in them hills. And they like sprint <laughs> off and then they come back years later, just like, oh, man, I'm so burned out of having to do like mario and call of duty videos like i just don't want to do this anymore and it's like well yeah because you got typecasted essentially and you let the algorithm typecast you the problem is you know with like television and traditional media typecasting means like people recognize you as a certain thing you're recognizable then you're kind of locked into it it's really hard to get jobs that are different than that yeah it's the fancy problem yeah with youtube that relationship is both ways we can actually get youtube through the algorithms and training it to what's good or not, teach it to typecast itself. Mm. And so like we run into this double, double problem of like, not only are people getting siloed by the algorithm and having a really hard time breaking away from mainstream content, Aaron signal ran into this with uh, doing blips and stuff like the performance on those numbers are lower, but long tail's pretty good. Right. right. And then, so, but YouTube just erects these walls based on your trends. So, you know, it's like, it's like if I like ate nothing but like pizza and pasta for like a month on a binge, cause I was just like having a craving for that long. And then like, I tried to go to like, I don't know, a seafood restaurant. And there was like a bouncer outside the seafood restaurant going like, Hey, aren't you that pizza eating fuck? Why don't you stick to pizza? Why don't you stick to nachos? Whatever the hell, get out of here. You can't eat here. Cause that's essentially what YouTube does. It yeah. goes like, get out of here. You, you got to go back in your like, like little, little hole. It was made for you and like, just stick to it. No, you're so, absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, and, and this applies to games because of the fact that now our tastemakers aren't, uh, written press and websites. It's, uh, podcasters for a while there. And now it's, it's the YouTuber, right? It's the streamer. It's the video essayist, all this stuff. This happens on Twitch too. Like Twitch is obviously like dictated by its own market dynamics, which is why a couple of years ago, Twitch streamers used to play all these cool, wacky indie games. And like, you could see really good returns from that on marketing. And now what happens is they're all just fucking playing Fortnite. That's yeah. all that it is. It's just Fortnite twenty four seven because that's what's profitable. So oh yeah, it makes tons of back loops. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and it is it is apocalyptic. And so what you find is just like don't 
don't let them control you, right? Just just like you might have to like stick to long tail strategies. You might have to stick it out. It's scary. I know you get it. Hoard your nuts for winter and just like get your courage and just move ahead. Because what you will find is you will get much greater returns just carving out your niche and sticking with it. Because people value earnestness over everything else. And like, uh, trust me, there will be a time for you under the sun. Like if Dwarf Fortress can finally take off the way that it has, there will be a niche for you and you will get your five minutes in the spotlight. Don't worry about it. The trick <laughs> is to just plan ahead for these these seasons, right? I was talking to a guest the other day on the podcast at General Interactive. We were talking about their game at Terroir, which is a wine um, tycoon game, right? And so one of the things that they pointed out to me, uh, Mark Fillion, I think it is, uh, one of the things that they pointed out to me was that they had to study like wine patterns. And that was like sort of the idea of wine vintages, right? Was you kept your vintages on hand for the bad years. Mm. There are going to be bad years, no matter how good your vineyard is. And so by having those vintages on hand and keeping control of that inventory and stocking up extra wine for that period, you can make it through the hard times. And we very much so do that with games, right? Like we make yeah. a good game and that's a hit. And then we hoard our cash and like, we spend a little bit of it to make a new game, and if that's a flop, then we're not hit so hard. Or if we dump everything into it, well, then we're just wiped out and the studio closes. So it's also like that for totally for like uh, streaming and marketing and everything else, though, right? So yeah. we, we run into kind of this window of like uh, users and the market and everything is very like temperamental. It is an ecosystem, and, and I mean that literally in an ecology sense. So are you going to have a highly curated, uh, tightly confined English garden, or are you going to have permaculture, right? Permaculture is more sustainable, but it takes a longer time to build. So how patient are you with that? Right. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, that's like, ultimately, what's, what's fascinating is the way you're describing this is it's both the... Um, it's both the the way that the the games themselves work, right? Like, but also the way that the 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 places producing the criticism on them work as well. Like the idea of like producing some sort of um, criticism on this or finding the cult classics, like you're gonna fail as often and more often than you succeed in finding these things. So you just like you get good vintages and you work with those. And then like, hopefully uh, you keep panning out until like you find your, your, your niche. Like it's, it's wild to see how parasitic's the wrong word. Cause it sounds as if um, it, it sounds as if like, you know, you're, you're somehow doing something wrong, but like there is a parasitic quality to, to media in this way as well. And uh, that, that's really the thing, right? Is that it's kind of this issue of, I don't know. Like, what what have your experiences as, like, an end user been? I mean, you you play a lot of games, right? So where do yeah. you go to get your curation, your recommendations? I mean, honestly, tell me. Like, uh, I want to know. Yeah, I mean, usually I just, honestly, I, I keep an eye on my Twitter feed or, like, see what uh, no cartridge users are playing or I have a couple friends who I really trust. Like, it's it's honestly just word of mouth at this point. Um, I I don't go to YouTube or anything like that. I I mean I I certainly could. I I can think of a couple of people who I'd be interested in seeing. Um, I always am interested in like what what my friend Shannon uh, Strucci, who's a YouTuber, is playing. Uh, all that stuff. But uh, yeah, no, it's like um, that kind of stuff is is where I get my games uh, uh, stuff from. Uh, if someone links me to Rebind, I always take that seriously, and I'm not just saying that because you're on. Uh, <laughs> you know, I have, I have like, I have a number of places where, you know, I'm just, I'm, 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 I take seriously, and other places I don't. And I, I think like 
the places I take seriously are always because I take them seriously because they are because they have a very clear and consistent point of view. Like you're right, earnestness mm. above all, right? Like I don't I don't like them because like they had one good article. Um I like them. Like I I trust Giant Bomb because I know some of the Giant Bomb people and like they seem like, you know, very genuine nice people. Um and I know mm. that like their recommendations are going to be like serious and and they care and like even if i disagree with them they're coming from a place that um is like serious and about the art itself and you know what what more could you ask um yeah no and i guess like in terms of thinking about gaming like uh, you know if, I, if i'm going to get invested in a studio uh monetarily or emotionally uh I, I want them to have the same thing i want them to sort of like have a philosophy and an approach yeah, and to sort of kind of continue documenting this, like, umwelt of what it is to be, like, an indie dev, uh, it's sort of this idea that, like, we, we pick up here, right? You, you, you value word of mouth, and not just that, you value word of mouth from also outlets you trust, which is the strength of brands like Rock, Paper, Shotgun, Giant Bomb, etc. And so there's, I have no opposition to commercial media. I think it has a place in the ecosystem. I think it's mm -hmm. valuable. I think they handle an exceptional workload. Like, I'm not envious of, like, the amount of writing that they have to do to keep up with the news and everything like that. And I remember the times before we had them when there was no easy way to get news aggregated to us through things oh, like yeah. Twitter or whatever. Or it was like, we had to rely on them and we didn't have them. It was just, like, whispers on, like, a GameSpec, like, Read Me TXT of just, like, Oh, there might be a new game next year. Like, who knows? Yeah, those those uh, were those were dark times. <laughs> just... Dark times indeed. And so what we're seeing is like just in the way that there are YouTubers shifting over to more narrow focuses and they have their specializations. Uh, you know, Civi's a great example. All Civi does is boomer shooters. Whether they're old or new, like Civi just like has fun, fucks around, and enjoys these games, and they're fantastic, and, and he's got a big following, and you know, it it cultivates this specific audience which is great because then you have like companies like new blood interactive who like ha build those relationships with civi as well as the fan base and goes like you know they go like okay what do you guys want like let's give you what you actually like and, they, and they're able to cater to that trajectory right yeah and so what we're seeing is also an upswing in written press that does the same you know like people wanted like really cool critical writing so we got like uh deorbital we got uh heterotopias is like a zine thing and then now we've had uh for the past couple of years we've had some amazing curation by the folks over at critical distance yeah critical distance huge is shout nice. out yeah and also on top of that they're a big reason why we've been able to get traction in the academic and journalistic series so we are extremely mm. grateful to them and especially to their newer initiatives where they catalog uh video essays and, and good youtube content because uh here's the thing you go to certain YouTubers because you want to get that certain kind of content. And now we're starting to see that with outlets where, again, it's like we got Into the Spine. We've got Uppercut Crit. We've got uh, Capsule Crit. We've got, um, let's see what else we got. Deephell.com. We have, uh, I want to say there's a couple of others kicking around. Um, I feel like I'm going to forget one. SideQuest Zone. Um, those are the ones that, that come to mind immediately that we have quite a bit or only a little interaction with and mm -hmm. they are all fantastic wonderful people go check them out okay uh but there is this nice ecosystem now and and critical distance does a lot of good work in bringing us all together as well 
where we can write about the shit we want to write about and find our own audiences. Like, not everybody who goes to SideQuest Zone reads Rebind, and not everybody who reads Rebind reads SideQuest Zone because they cater to different, like, ways of thinking about things and different approaches, you know? We tend to go for these, like, really high-minded, whimsical, analytical things focusing on indies. They're more, like, broader think pieces and, like, sort of, like, maybe a little bit more of the traditional constant stream that you're used to, but with, like, a nice, like, fun bent to it in terms of, like, a little bit of critical analysis here and there. So it's, like, I kind of liken it to, like, you don't want a neighborhood where your only choice is Applebee's and Taco Bell, right? You want to have, like, a nice ramen place down the street. You want to have that nice Italian place, etc. You want these things to be, like, complementary to each other and, and to serve that. You don't want to, like... Nobody goes to the old spaghetti factory and goes, like, Oh, man, I'm so glad this place does everything really mediocrely. Like, <laughs> come on. Get out of here. But, like, I mean, the, on the other hand, like, the way you the way you talk about it, like, you sometimes... Like you don't want a neighborhood that only has that, but on the other hand, like most people don't want a neighborhood that only has, um, like the really good ramen place and like a nice like uh, uh, bon mi place and like a good you know barbecue place and an mm-hmm. empanada place. They they also want typically like they want to be able to go to McDonald's. They want to be able to to you know yep. get that kind of comfort food and, too. And like and that, that's what it goes back part. to. Yeah, we've got so many outlets who are mainstream and and have a lot of that like. They're not going anywhere. You yeah. know, you've got your, you got your reset era. You've got your Kotaku. You've got your Polygon. Like those will always be institutions that are generally going to be there. Your IGNs and game spots for sure. Uh, and, and those like kind of serve that role. So we're, we're all part of it. It's not a zero sum game, right? It's not all or nothing. So right. I, I right. think that goes yeah. a long way. Well, and, and it's like, it's interesting to see places like I've gotten some stuff written in, um, or published in, uh, um, uh, EGM, uh, recently. And like, those uh, the, both essays I wrote for EGM are like pretty. No escape VG. No escape VG. That's a big one, and I shouldn't forget them because they. Oh are yeah, awesome. yeah, yeah. No, they're great. I like them a lot. Uh, I like No Escape quite a bit. Um, but yeah, like like the stuff that I wrote there is like very high minded and critical and stuff. Like I, you know, I was I was one of the only like non giant bomb people to write out like a not glowing review of death stranding or like, you know, my, my piece on Kentucky route zero is all about like recursion and stuff like that. Like the, mm-hmm. you know, the, that is like a major, major, uh, uh, magazine that is now doing like critically analytical stuff. And like, it's, it's weird coming at it from, from where I am looking at the space of critical games discourse when I started this podcast and where it is now. Um, and see, and like, I think this might be the first time I'm willing to admit that, yes, there is like it is better <laughs> and like and, and more expansive and, and maybe even like part of the zeitgeist, uh, which is kind of like I don't know, like I don't know who would have predicted that. I don't know who would have like seen that coming. Maybe I'm just bad at predictions, but uh, it is it is interesting to sort of hear it all laid out like that and realizing like, yeah, actually, mm-hmm. like there is a ton of this stuff out there that is like so much better than the like the the kind of lesser quality stuff that inspired me to actually like go ahead and do this in the first place uh, which is not a way of saying i quit because it's done um it's a way of saying like that's great i'll like, take really your cool. audience it's fine please don't I'll take over for you it's take okay. my audience please <laughs> um but yeah no no, no. like it, it is like it is cool like it's 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 neat to hear it all laid out like that it actually does make your point about about these games kind of like weathering the storm weathering the bad years and then finding the place where they can kind of kind of do yeah kind of do the cool niche weirdo uh experimental stuff 
um, on their own terms again. I, I, I believe so you let, now. Let's step up an echelon too. Let's because this I, I hate to just keep pulling the camera back like Kentucky Route Zero, just like reveal more layers, but there absolutely <laughs> are, and, and we're we're getting close to getting a comprehensive big picture here. So um, I think uh, some point last year I wrote a piece called "The Great Gaming Sepulture." Okay. And it was sort of like a fangs out sort of like general takedown of the atmosphere and the institution that is GDC. I didn't realize that I had apparently casted some kind of curse or something on GDC that just like eliminated it the next year. So score one rebind GDC zero. Uh, remember that before you mess with us next time. That Yeah, that's, uh, that's powerful. You, you took down an institution. Whoops. Uh, <laughs> no, nah, for real, though, uh, what I kind of covered in that um, piece is that, like, I actually really like GDC. Uh, my first GDC was last year. I really enjoyed it, and I have been met many, many times with all the burnout cynicism of just like, oh, this is my 80th GDC, and I hate it, and I'm a grumpy old person or whatever. And it's like, there's a lot of people with a bone to pick to GDC that I think is totally valid, and I think especially, like, people outside America, mm-hmm. and I think people who can't afford to go, like, those people can punch up at GDC as much as they want. But there's like a lot of industry like insiders too have just been like, ah, I'm so tired of it. Like, well, isn't it nice that you do go to all these trade shows all the time and then you get to bitch and be picky and choosy, and whatever. Like not everybody gets that opportunity and not everybody gets the opportunity to get paid for it. Like, come on. And that's fine. I get it. It's all about perspective, right? Like some of us get lucky. We fail upwards. We stumble in the industry. Maybe we have a breakout hit. Maybe we crunch. Maybe we, loan our house out and like pull a reverse like quantum mortgage and extract super meat boy out of it or whatever you know <laughs> whatever it gets you into the industry that's fine uh so not not to induce so much snark but that piece was there to sort of outline the ways that we neglect students we neglect minorities we neglect people outside this industry and what does that event really offer them in the long run that we couldn't supplant with alternative infrastructure i right. think rami ismail kind of pulled the pants down on the whole industry um the other year by doing uh games world or, or whatever it was called the big global games convention that was all online which seems now pretty prescient considering everybody's going like oh suddenly digital is okay <laughs> uh, and and the problem is that a lot of these uh, and and I'm kind of not afraid to say this because I'm not necessarily a part of this ecosystem because I'm not a trade publication. I don't rely on these things, but like I like a lot of the publishers out there. I have friends at publishers. I I adore them. They're great. Um, some of them are cool. Some of them are not cool. Who knows? I don't know. Whatever. But now that the boilerplate's out of the way, I feel that it is totally valid to critique this ecosystem because I feel like the trend of having in-person events serves two purposes. One is the family get-together reunion, like kind of like see your old friends to the industry that you only get to see once a year because everybody's working crunch and being worked into like just ground into like bone dust, right? Yeah. And so they only get this opportunity to have a vacation by making it work, right? So everything's about work in America. Work, 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 work. So this is how you get to see your friends. This is how you get to see your old colleagues and things like that. Yeah, I think that's yeah, something you're right. I think that's wonderful. I'm sad that it's built on a pile of bones, though. Uh, so moving along from that, I think that the whole like VC funding and funding and marketing firms and publishing infrastructure that is tapped into these trade shows 
Because here's the thing. I know the publishers don't like it either because the publishers love nothing more than being able to directly access these developers and approach them in an easy and no bullshit manner. Like they don't, they don't want to stress over this stuff either. Like a lot of them are like, again, really good folks and they just want to make cool games and fun, cool games and whatever and get them out there. But the problem is there's this sort of like uh, the, the institution of GDC is predatory in that it cooks up these like really extravagant wild parties where you got to like show up and like, uh, you know, be really elaborate and like be cool, like the the cool kids at Microsoft and Sony and all this stuff. And you right. have to like have these big booths and these big parties and all this stuff and sort of like just like it. It feels like Mean Girls sometimes on like a conceptual like corporate basis, right? Mm-hmm. And so the problem yeah. is that then it becomes these like hunting ranges of like, oh, we're going to do business deals when we're drunk, and it's like. Hey, you know who can't do that? A lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people don't want to be around alcohol. Uh, a lot of women don't want to be around alcohol. A lot of men don't want to be around alcohol because it's the fact that like there's so many like catastrophic incidences of like things going horribly, horribly wrong when everyone's intoxicated and getting the wrong signals, right? And uh, yeah. To these, yeah, yeah, these, yeah. Like, <laughs> horrible human dynamics where we like override each other's boundaries and just really fucked up shit goes down, right? Yep, absolutely. Why do we want to be doing business around that kind of atmosphere? Why do we want to be doing business in that setting when we could have just been doing it online the whole time? And I can tell you why, because like there's a sort of like mystic cult built up around publishers, the gatekeepers, and publishers don't think about themselves that way. They just go like, show me a budget, show me a pitch, we'll talk, and you can pitch to us multiple times. Like this is not your like one shot, whatever. But people but think about it that way. The rest way. of us. Yeah. Right. When you're on the other side of that, you're like, especially your first time, you're like quaking in your boots going like, can I talk to them? Is that okay? <laughs> what if I don't get the pitch right? I'm going to get rejected. Uh. And so it leads to a situation where these trade shows become the de facto like temple of being able to meet with the great benevolent gods of publishing to decide whether or not I get to pay my mortgage, pay my rent, feed my kids, uh, right, have sure. a partner, yeah. uh, anything. Like, they don't intend to put themselves in that position, but the industry as a whole does put them in that position. And that is really, really shitty for indies because half the time it's always just like, you you ask for money and it's either too little or it's too much. That That's my favorite fucking thing, right? It's like you, you, too little. you put it out there and you're like, yeah, well, no. I mean, like, who's going to fund you for any less than uh, 100000 Right. Answer, not too many people. And each publisher also has like a totally different criteria for how they do like being talked to, what they like to see in a pitch, what their funding ranges are, all this stuff. So you're having to be like a mind reader here and figure out all this stuff. And they're just like, oh, just go research it, whatever. And it's like, that is absolutely true. You can do that for a lot of people, but not everyone has those kinds of soft skills or those research skills or anything like that. And especially when you're an indie, you're working a day job at a cafe, you're trying to like cobble together a team, a bunch of people who you've managed to convince to get in on this and like rev share <laughs> alone. Yeah. And you're also trying to do all these like maxed out adult responsibilities. Maybe you have a family. A lot of indie devs I've met have families. And uh, it, it's kind of this case of, like, how are you supposed to keep track of all this stuff? Like, yeah, it's easy to just be like, uh, just 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 come talk to me when you are paid literally full time to just be a scout or just to represent that company. Right. Like, oh, that's yeah. your job. You get paid to have that luxury. Whereas, like, on the outside of that, when you're doing this as a side hustle, it, it's not that simple. And then you're trying to, like, what, pour all that, like, mental energy into being creative as well and a parent 
and like a sibling and like a family member and like a young person and a student and all this stuff. It's like, come on. Like we're all living paycheck to paycheck here, like have some understanding. And that means that the media outlets have to be proactive. It means the publishers have to be proactive. And a lot of publishers are like, I'll give that to like raw fury, Kowloon Knights and stuff like that. Like Callum, uh, who's now with, uh, Kowloon Knights is really proactive, like goes out there, reaches out to people, does talks all the time about what's a fair deal, what's not, etc. Like good people there, and there's a lot of people like that out there. So that's the thing, and it's like, but the problem is when you establish yourself in the public eye as the good publisher, that means everyone's knocking down your door. That's right, and the 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 you're not going to be the good publisher for long at that point because it's like you're. Your your scope's going to get bigger. You have to start making yeah. hard decisions. And, yeah, yeah. You, you have to like, and you're going to be booked out. I mean, like, I know Devolver, for example, is like probably like pretty booked out at this point because just like everybody knows that name, Devolver. Okay, everybody pitches to them like probably first thing. Yeah, and a so it's, uh, it's like all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's complicated. So it's like we need more options on the smaller side of things because especially when you get to the itch size of stuff. Man, so many indies I know would be able to finish their games with like five to ten k and have something that's commercially viable with a long tail. Maybe not. They're not going to like be a breakout hit. They're not going to compete with Animal Crossing or Call of Duty or whatever. But like, they'll make a modest game that will have return. And we are starting to see this now with uh, a great example I like to use as an outlier is Papa Combo. Okay. Papa Combo is cool because they just crank out uh, a cheeky little horror game once a month. They throw it up on Patreon and like. Man, they're making so much money, not as much money as they would like to be making because running a business is hard and like they burn the candle at both ends. I don't know how they do it. They have incredible stamina, but they have a huge and viscerally dedicated following. Yeah. And so that kind of proves that like these niche small games, you might have to stay on them longer, but they have that viability in the marketplace. Yeah. And I, I uh, and we're, we're, we're coming to the end, but like uh, not not because of you, but just because we. Because time is a is a horrible mistress, but the because um, uh, I could sit and talk with you all night about this stuff. But the um, like what I think is fascinating about what you said there is you know like the the way that digital is becoming acceptable, you know whether like however long the the coronavirus tale is right, like the idea of getting something digitally and not leaving your house has become more acceptable too literally everyone uh, mm-hmm. by way of, of, of sort of like being isolated and like, you're right. Like take making it, making it remote, making it digital, making it something that you don't have to go to a place for uh, removes all sorts of anxieties and material problems and things that have kept certain people out of these spaces for long enough that like, yeah, you're looking at, you're looking at the possibility of a whole new series of, dedicated audiences finding someone they're dedicated to, to, to not yep. for, for lack of a better way of putting it. And to wrap this up and bring it full circle, oh, you're the really whole good point I'm getting at is curation is the future. And I don't mean steam curation through algorithms. I don't mean YouTubers. I mean, people banding together the way that companies like new blood interactives has, or like night dive studios and sort of banding together in this sort of like band camp, like vanity label kind of way of getting these like-minded people together and collaborating as one entity because people recognize a brand name because that's what how a lot of gamers would treat things like devolver. They go like, those are the guys who made hotline Miami. So they have cool edgy games, right? And so now companies like New Blood have been able to come in, capitalize this and go like, 
awesome. Like, we're going to make, like, experimental stuff. Sometimes we're going to have boomer shooters. Sometimes we're going to have, like, throwback stuff. Sometimes we're going to, like, do, like, cool horror games. Like, whatever. You know, and, and people come to recognize that. It's a way to cut through the signal to noise. And yeah. that means you can't just be a publisher now. You need to have vision. Mm. That is, like, that's a, that's a great place to end on. And actually, I hope... Um, any of the the mythical de- uh, devs at bigger publishers who say they listen to the show, um, I, I hope I hope you're hearing that, and I hope we see a lot more like cool people making their own vision. Um, well, Emily, thank you so much for being on. Uh, there's like of a, course, and and please come on again. I would actually, I'm actually going to to ask now and, and get it on recording. So I mean, if you say no, then it gets your your yeah your refusal also on recording. So you know, double edged sword here. But uh, I would love to have you on stream at some point. That would be really fun. Uh, we could play yeah, some games. Yeah, no, hundred okay. percent. All right, cool. Well, now you're now you're committed. Uh, it's 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 in the public record. Um, <laughs> but there's like thirty thousand things that that I, I feel like you're working on right now. What what should people? Where should people be looking for you? Where should people be? Uh, you know, buying, reading, uh, enjoying your content. Uh, give give people a couple of links. Yeah, so uh, twitter.com slash rebind underscore io. That's where all our news feeds, podcasts, etc. get posted. Uh, you can find links to our Patreon and Kofi's there and all that stuff. Uh, that's patreon.com slash rebind. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, that's, I try to keep everything in one place, especially on Twitter. Uh, we do have a Discord, uh, so you can, like, join a Patreon, hop in the Discord. It's a nice mixture of, we have a lot of wonderful patrons, but we also have a lot of friends of the site there who are developers that we like doing fun stuff with and, and hanging out and talking to on Twitter. So I, 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 again, I, Dave Oshry is a big inspiration. Like, community engagement is number one. Like, you, the audience, are number one in my book, so... Uh, I like having that back and forth, that two-way relationship with mm. people. So come that's, check it out. That's a much nicer way of thinking about it than parasocial. I think you've you've sort of tapped into something much healthier there. <laughs> yeah, it should be earnest. I don't want like a huge audience that's like in love with me. I just want like people who want to come and hang out and like have a brewski or whatever. Sweet. Well, yeah, uh, come on again soon. Let's stream soon. And uh, and thank you so much for being on. Yeah, of course, hundred percent. Thank you for having me on. Oh, anytime. Hey, thanks for listening to No Cartridge. If you'd like to support us further, please consider going to patreon.com slash no cartridge or for a one-time donation, paypal.me slash hegelbon, H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. It's really, really helpful for all of us to be able to support uh, the many people who make this show, uh, you know, myself included, but also our producers and various co-hosts um, and, and writers and artists. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to like, subscribe, share, any of those things that would let other people get the quality video game analysis that you've grown accustomed to.